Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. There are so many threats to the kingdom of God, right? Some that we probably don't need to worry about, uh, but threats nonetheless. You know, things that become obstacles for a Christian as they uh, share their faith with the people around them. Oppression from the outside world, indifference to a moral reality that exists because of a good and loving God. Hostility, spiritual warfare, quite frankly, all of the evil that we talked about last week uh, during our service. It's interesting to me that we as Christians would let something else factor against the advancement of the kingdom of God, something that we are responsible for, something that we have control over. Why would we add to the problem of the threats against the kingdom? Why do we Christians make it harder for us to do the work of Christ. Harsh and hurtful Christians are everywhere. We used to only see them with their bullhorns in some public forum, like on a college campus, or or maybe it was, you know, on TV exposing their hatred uh, for some policy that existed, or or maybe it was uh, that rare sighting on the freeway as one Jesus fish professing Christian displayed their hateful glare and waved their middle finger to the person who cut them off in traffic, Right? Um, but now, harsh and hateful Christians are everywhere. Everyone has some kind of a platform. It's unavoidable to run into someone with an agenda. And so frequently, the agenda of the Christian happens to be hateful and hurtful or harsh. It's no surprise that people don't want to be identified with the title Christian. Right? We're creating baggage for our brand, for our lifestyle all of the time. And it's sad. I'm saddened because I love Jesus. I love the faith story that I have. I, I love how Jesus stepped into my family's timeline and rescued us from depravity of a life that was lived or could have been lived without him. It wasn't perfect. It, it, it wasn't ideal necessarily all the time, but that's only because my family and myself included, we all needed some transformation that we had to work on. You know, we don't look like Jesus uh, just yet. And the reality is, as Christians, none of us do. I think that when we break this question down, how do we deal with harsh or hateful Christians? We have a responsibility to look inward first, to look into our own lives, our own lives. How does our brokenness hurt the people around us? And then as we grow into the likeness of Christ more, that's when we can begin to look outward. And so I think this question has two obvious sides to it, inward and outward, inward to our journey and outward to the people around us. Maybe that's the church inward to the church, certainly, and outward then to the unbelieving world. And, and as I continue, as Ross said earlier, I want to remind you that you can interact with this message uh, during the service. Send Ross and I your questions. 
uh, by going to the webpage, either by scanning the QR code that's in your bulletin, or you can go straight to uh, the website, type it in on your, your own phone, uh, go to quest.org forward slash share. And, uh, and type in your questions. But I want to encourage you this morning, as, as you ask those questions of us that, that we'll talk about in a minute, uh, please limit your questions uh, to this topic alone. Please keep your questions focused on uh, what it means to respond or how do we respond to harsh and hateful Christians. If, if you um, kind of stray off those, we probably won't address them today because of our time. But I do want to let you know, because this has come up every single week and I think it could play into today's message, um, questions about homosexuality will be inter- uh, uh, dealt with next week. And then the following week, we're going to deal with unanswered prayers, okay? Um, and I don't have to deal with those. Uh, Ross is going to be preaching then, so I'm happy for that. Uh, okay. Now, I want to begin today by dealing with the outside world. How, does, how do we respond to harsh and hateful Christians when it is in response to the outside world? And this morning, if you're here and you're not a believer, first thing I want to do is I want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. So thankful that you've come to uh, Quest, to worship with us, to maybe explore some more. More than anything else in the world, I love talking about faith with people uh, who are exploring faith for themselves. It gives me life, it gives me energy, and, and so I want to I welcome you today. But let me define what I mean by the outside world so we're all on the same place. I, I, I say the outside world is a place where Christ does not reign in the lives of the people who live there. Okay, This is a world that's apart from the church. Within the church... While we may disagree on some of the things that, that we believe, um, some of the ways that we choose to express those or how we live out our faith, we do agree on some central ideas, okay? And um, those ideas we find beautifully outlined in the Nicene and Apostles' Creeds. I'm going to read now to you from the Apostles' Creed. These are the basic doctrinal beliefs that we um, as the church believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I used to love uh, saying that in church when I was a, when I was growing up. But these these are the doctrinal statements right here in the Apostles' Creed, also found in the Nicene Creed, that hold the church together. These are the essentials. On all other things within the church, we can disagree, but how we disagree is important. And I'm going to get to that in a moment, okay? Now, I bring this up uh, because uh, this is the rule of life for the church. It's not the rule of life for anyone that's outside of the church, but only those who are inside the church. This is important to understand because what we believe determines how we live, right? Unbelievers are not going to live like Christians, and we can't expect them to. They, they have a different standard by which they live. And, and let's be honest, this is why... Some of us get so angry at the outside world because there's incongruity there. 
Because we know that life lived with Jesus is more satisfying. It's driven by peace. It's, it's focused on healing and, and raising the standard of living in any community. And let me just, I encourage you to, um, if you're interested in knowing more about this, how Christianity has raised the, the living standard in the communities, um, please do some research on how um, the impact that Christianity has made on uh, the value of human life, on the value of marriage and family, education, science and the arts, um, uh, work ethic, etc. And as Christians, when our quality of life is threatened, by an outside source, we get angry, right? We have emotions that come up when we feel threatened. When we, when we sense that our family is being threatened by someone outside of, 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 in our outside world or, or, um, when we feel that our freedom to practice faith the way that we want to is in jeopardy, we have these emotions come up. Or when we're standing in line at the BMV and we look at all the chaos around us and we think, I could do a better job of organizing this. This is truly one of the layers of hell that Dante wrote about. (laughs) We become emotional in those moments. We struggle to live out of our Christian faith and our values in those moments, right? And so I, I want to address this first because this is one of our primary responsibilities as a Christian. Christ told us, Matthew 28, right before he ascended into heaven, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, to go to the outside world, to communicate what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to make them disciples. We are supposed to share our faith with the outside world. We are supposed to live our Christian life for the world to see. And, and, and I would encourage everyone here to go back and read through all of First Peter. Our source verse um, for this series is First Peter 3.15, but I encourage you to go back and read First Peter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and go on and read the whole thing because particularly in chapters 2 and 3, we get this prescription of precisely how we should live among the pagans as Christians, how we should live so that they will begin to ask us questions what that looks like, what our lives should look like when we do that. See, the question that's being asked for us today is, is can we do it when we are angry? Can we be Christians who are harsh and hateful when we share our faith? And I think the answer, real simply, is no, we cannot. That's not how we share Christ. Our example of faith And how we share it is found in both the Old and the New Testament. And we don't have a record in those of any hateful faith sharing. We don't have a record of hurtful faith sharing. We don't have a record of judgmental faith sharing. Uh, This is kind of like the, the first images that we watched in the video. I mean, I understand that we might be angry with the people that don't share our same values because of, you know, what they threaten to take from us. But that doesn't give us the right to judge them. Okay, judging others is a right as a Christian that we don't have. Let me clarify that statement. Judging the outside world, the fallen world, is not a right that Christians have. That is something that rests squarely on the shoulders of God. Let me read uh, a text for you um, from one of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. 
In this text, he's addressing an issue going on within the church, and he makes a statement that I think every Christian should heed and understand. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and following. Listen to what Paul says here to the church. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he clarifies this statement. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. The only place you can do that is to do it on the moon or in Mars or someplace else where people don't exist is what Paul is saying. I don't know why he didn't write that there, but he chose not to. Maybe he edited out. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, with non-Christians, with unbelievers? Verse 13, God judges those outside. It's not the role of the Christians. Now, I left out some of what Paul wrote here because um, that's where we're going to go to next. And I don't want to muddy up this point. Paul, like Jesus, did not judge the sinners who were not a part of the body of Christ. Paul, like Jesus and Peter you know, our source author, built relationships with the outside world so that a conversation uh, could happen about faith, a winsome conversation, right? They they defended out the outside world. They befriended the outside world. They They used those relationships with the outside world not to judge or to condemn, but rather to demonstrate the very thing that they were all living for. That, of course, is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, right? His, his acceptance of others into the family of God. Before we even knew God, while we were still sinners, while we were still against him, he came to us in the form of Christ so that we could accept him, believe in him, and be brought back into the family of God. See, there's, this is not an offer that Christ makes or Peter makes or Paul makes of condemnation or judgment. I mean, just think about um, the instance where Jesus met with the woman who was caught in adultery. Who, who did he defend in that moment? What about the woman at the well? Did he judge her? What about the, the tax collectors or the sinners, the IRS men? <sighs> what did Jesus do? How did he treat them? He didn't avoid them. He didn't disrespect them. He befriended them. He ate with them. He honored them with his words and with his presence and the truth about who he was. That is the model that we have for how we should deal with the outside world. We have one goal, one goal as Christians when it comes to the outside world, and that is to demonstrate the submission of Christ so that they too may experience love. There's no goal of judgment. As Paul said, God judges the outside world. But here's what Paul also says. And this is the question that addresses the other side of how we deal with hurtful and hateful Christians. The rest of the text from 1 Corinthians 5 reads this way. I'll begin back in 9 again, um, but I'm going to focus here on verse 11 and following. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexual, sexually immoral people. Not all, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedier or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of this world. Verse 11. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That is a Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is a swindler, an idolater, a reviler, or a drunkard. Don't even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. This question that we're asking right now is, is, is directly from the questions that we received last week. Do we have the right to judge others? Simply put, yes and no. <laughs> Trick you. Yes, yes, let me answer. Yes, yes, we can judge Christians. As Christians, we can judge Christians. No, we cannot judge the outside world. This doesn't mean that we don't recognize what, uh, you know, is going on that's morally corrupt about the outside world. We just simply don't hold them to the same standard that we have as Christians because they don't live by the same standard. And just so we know the full story of what Paul is addressing here in this first Corinthians text, this is really important for us. Um, Paul is writing them because there was a Christian who was known to have been sleeping with his stepmother. Gross. Okay. Uh, earlier in the text, verse one, chapter five, Paul is disgusted with the church. He's disgusted with them because this person is sleeping with his stepmother and the church is doing nothing to address it. And essentially what he says is not even the pagans do that. They know that's a line that they shouldn't cross. Sure, they, you know, they visit prostitutes and yeah, they have orgies and all kinds of other stuff, but they wouldn't do that and you haven't addressed it. So I'm coming to you right now and I'm going to deal with it. Paul makes a judgment and he gives authority to the Christians to also judge their brothers in Christ. This, by the way, is also, you know, demonstrated by Jesus. Okay. Now I recognize that as I start to say this, some of you might be looking around the room going, oh, sweet. They got up there and just said, we can judge everybody in this room. That's a Christian. That's a Christian. Yes, you can't. No, I'm just kidding. Before you like start taking notes and you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, oh, I know what's going on over there. Let me write this down. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Before we get there, I want to take a step back to what we said earlier. And remember that before we look inward to the church, to other Christians with our judgment, we have to look inward to ourselves. We're all in this process of becoming a little bit more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit that's within us. This is what discipleship is. Before we take aim at our brother or sister in Christ, we have a responsibility to consider what our motivation is. We have a responsibility to consider what our intent is. Do we have pure motives or intent? Or are we judging because it feels good to judge? (laughs) No. That's how people become hateful. That's how people become hurtful, right? When they don't consider what's going on in their own lives and they take aim at someone else first. And, and, and this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect in order to call out behavior that's unchristlike around us in, in the Christian's lives or in our church. But 
we should be able to measure our own heart, our own intent, and know that at the very least we are producing fruit or actions that are Christ-like, right? Listen, listen to the words of Jesus as he calls out the behavior of the Pharisees. He's judging them. And this is following an interaction where they were trying to trap him, to get him to say something uh, that was going to you know, violate the, the religious laws. And uh, he's, he's been working on the Sabbath, and they're like, you know, can you do that? But he knows the motives of their hearts, and he judges them. Now, these are genuine worshipers of God. These are men who, who know about God, who have been seeking him out, and, um, but their motives are off. They're broken, right? Okay, Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37 says this, Jesus addressing the Pharisees. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Verse 34. You brood of vipers. How can you... Someone whistle. That's right. You mound of snakes. Okay. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything that's good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him but i tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they've spoken for by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned now when i was 15 years old i had to memorize this verse as a punishment I may have said something to my mom that I shouldn't have said. It's possible that I threw a chair in the kitchen. No one can substantiate that. But anyway, I memorized this verse and, and it was, for me, it was a moment of discipleship, of growth, of transformation, of change, where I, I understood truth for the first time and I realized that the things that I say really come out of who I am deep in my heart. And my mom knew this, and she was calling me to a higher standard of living. She knew that I had more transformative work to go through in my life. What my mom was doing and what we do as brothers and sisters in Christ is to sharpen each other, right? To challenge each other, to correct, and to help one another to be more Christ-like. And is this something that's easy to do? Absolutely not. It's not easy for anybody in that conversation. It's not easy to hear those kinds of things, to recognize that you are broken and that you've made a mistake and that you need to change. It's also not easy to bear the truth in love, to go to someone that you like, that you want to continue relationship with, and tell them that they have work to do in their life. But deep, meaningful relationships come as a result of our willingness to share the hard truths with one another, done in love, because we know that they will produce a deeper relationship with Jesus. As Christians, this is what we're supposed to do. These are the convictions that we hold to because we believe um, that a life in Jesus is a blessing. The moral conviction, convictions, convictions that, that Peter and Paul and Jesus hope will create action in our lives, change. Otherwise, if we just have words describing who we are but no behavior, we're really just hypocrites, right? We believe one thing or we say we believe one thing but we live another we act differently than, than what we profess. 
We're just hypocrites. And none of us honestly should expect perfection of ourselves. That's, that's a high standard. That's a, that's a Christ-like standard. But we should be on this path of transformation. As we make a mistake, as we live a way that does not line up with what we believe as followers of Jesus, we, we may have a blind spot. We may be working out sin that's intentional in our lives, trying to get rid of that. We should hope that there will be people in our lives who are willing to step into the uncomfortable position of challenging our behavior and our actions. We should hope so, should we not? As Christians, though we're imperfect, we should not tolerate behavior from other Christians that does not resemble a Christian lifestyle. We should be uncompromisingly intolerant of sin uncompromisingly intolerant of sin. If not, we end up with a bunch of Christians who present Christ through their harshness, through their hurt, through their pain, through their anger. I want to talk about this idea of tolerance for a moment. Um, I, I've been anxious to talk about it. It's something that Ross and I have laughed about a couple times. There's a guy, Michael Ramsden. He's a, a philosopher and a theologian, and he works with um, Ravi Zacharias and his international ministries. And, and he asks this question. He says, have you ever thought about what it means to tolerate something or someone? Because when we think about, you know, what it means to be uncompromisingly intolerant, a lot of times if we just close our eyes. We picture this person in front of us who's, you know, Know, harsh or hateful. Maybe they're a bigot. Maybe maybe they just you know like they're they're narrow-minded. They're obtuse. They're uh, someone you don't want to be around. But as Christians, as Christians, I think that we have a responsibility to be uncompromisingly intolerant. But tolerance is such an interesting thing because if you think about it, like, do you just want to be tolerated? I hope not, because that's a pretty that's icky, man. Like. Well, I can tolerate that person. I don't really want to be around them, but I can tolerate them. Like, I tolerate y'all's presence here this morning. You know, come on. Do you guys feel as gross as I do when you think about just being tolerated? Like, that's, I'd rather be hated. That's such a, tolerance is like this low bar, the lowest bar possible of, of, of acceptance. I mean, it's, it's honestly pretty disrespectful. Um, and, uh, so, so when I hear this conversation about tolerance, I want to be clear, like I prefer to be a Christian that holds to uncompromising values and morals in this life. I do. I think that we should all be Christians who, who hold uncompromisingly. We are intolerant of, of hypocrisy because the person that is tolerant of hypocrisy is that person who is that harsh and hateful, who, who truly is a hypocrite themselves. We have a moral code as Christians that we should live by. And this is really what it should look like for a thoroughly and compromising person of faith who is judging the life of another Christian. This is not unlike what Jesus was doing here in Matthew 12. We have a measure, a metric by which we understand this is what an uncompromisingly uh, Christian life looks like. Verse 33 of Matthew 12 reads this way. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. 
This is the measure that we have as Christians. We should judge a Christian by their fruit. If their, if their fruit doesn't line up with Christianity, we have a right to judge, right? Paul tells us in Galatians 5 exactly what this fruit should look like. Verse 13, Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Those are two things that live in opposition with one another. Therefore, we are uncompromising in what it means to live by the Spirit. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit... Is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You are free. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And as you judge other Christians, let us not become conceited, or provoking, or envying each other. This is what we are thoroughly uncompromising about, that our fruit of Christians looks like this. If it doesn't, that's when we address it, when we talk about it, when we deal with it. But here's the key. How then should we deal with it? How should we address it to our fellow Christians, to our church? I think Paul would simply say, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If these things don't show up in our conversations with our brothers and sisters in Christ, if they don't show up in our actions uh, to other Christians as we correct them, then we have some work to do in our lives, in our own lives. Nowhere in our lives should we be inconsistent with the fruit that we are to bear in them. Otherwise, we need to be corrected. That's when it should come. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope this might give you hope. I hope that if you've ever been turned off or you've ever seen a Christian that was harsh or hateful, you might understand that, that their life isn't perfect, that this journey of faith is, is, it kind of meanders a little bit, but we are supposed to be challenging those places in our life where we are not perfect. That ultimately the life of a Christian should reflect the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In Christ, there is hope. In Christ, this is what we get to live. And Christians, I think we have a responsibility to live this stuff out or else recognize that we're living in hypocrisy. Maybe we need to be more challenging with ourselves. Maybe we need to be more challenging with the church. Maybe we need to look inside and see what part of our lives don't reflect Christ. So we ask the question, does my life reflect what Jesus said it should? Does this church reflect what Jesus said it should? 
Does the statement that I'm about to make reflect what Jesus said it should? Do my actions bear the fruit of the Spirit like Jesus does? Do, do, you know, if, if ever we, we get to those places and, and the answer is no, then we need to work to be the change, to allow the Holy Spirit to bring out that fruit in our lives the way it was supposed to be. We should be willing to submit to this process of change. Now I'm going to invite Ross up. We're going to address some of your questions. Um, I think Ross has probably got one already queued up. Yeah. So we uh, we had a question. We had a question. What if my parents are close friends and they faithful Christians? How do I approach them? It's all mixed up with several questions around the issue. There's all that kind of stuff. you know, or if I talk to them and they don't change, how do I continue to engage with them? Those are difficult things, aren't they, when we have strong disagreements in friendship or family? And uh, especially when it comes across rude. Now, I've told you many times, and Wendy, Wendy tries to tell me I'm probably painting myself worse than I really was, and I probably am, maybe, possibly. But I was one of those rude, hateful Christians years ago. I mean, there was a lot of me that was really kind and good and stuff, but I, 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 if, if you couldn't morally perform and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, I was pretty condemning. I was. And so, you know, how did I change? I didn't change by people telling me off. I changed by when I failed and screwed up, messed up in life, people coming to me and showing me kindness, and sometimes some of those people in those relationships saying, okay, Ross, put two and two together here. How did you treat that person, and how did all the people just now treat you in relation to this? And it began to soften my heart and change me. I mean, the reality of when we look at some of these harsh statements in the Bible, like Jesus calling people whitewashed tombs and brood of vipers, and even some of the stuff in the Old Testament, some of the hard things in the prophets, um, I was asked a question about that or, ta- or uh, given a thought about that even a week ago, knowing this topic was coming. Um, and you have to look at the context of those things. You have to read the entire Gospels to see that most of those harsh statements come at the very end of Matthew, at the very end of Jesus' time of ministry. Look at all the times he interacted with those people very differently, inviting them through stories, inviting them through gentler confrontations, inviting them through questions to change. Even the judgments that we get offended with in the Old Testament and the prophets. Look at the centuries of God's patience before he asked his prophets to be that strong and hard. I mean, there's time that leads up to that. And Jesus actually confronts primarily, who does he confront? He doesn't confront sinners. He doesn't confront the average person in church trying to follow God and trying to find God. Who he confronts are the leaders who are leading people down a blind, destructive path with that kind of harshness. That's not most people you run into. And so we gotta, we got to think about how we're invitational, how we actually show the grace of Christ to people and draw them to that rather than being harsh and jumping to that conclusion. Now, there have been times that I've done that. I mean, I remember one time that I met one person for the first time and, and I confronted him with not too far words from brood of vipers. And there was one other time I wish I would have, but I wimped out. But in both of those instances, the whole conversation leading up to that was a strong sense of the Holy Spirit saying, you need to do this, and I didn't want to do it. 
But even before that, it was all about me asking questions and hearing their pain, hearing their story, reflecting and, and gaining a sense of empathy with their history that led them to be this harsh and hard. And then the confrontation. But that's been one out of 20 or 30,000 conversations I've had with people. That's not the norm. And nor is it necessarily the norm in the Bible. It's easy to look at some of these harsh statements and, and forget the historical context and all the years and all the time that's gone by in relationship before these things happened. Okay, I've got a couple questions that may not seem to tie together. Um, but the first one, do you have that up yet? Okay, it's, um, there's a study that says about roughly 70% of uh People in America claim to be Christian. It's coming. There it is. Um, claim to be Christians. How do we judge and address in a Christ-like manner the behavior of nominal Christians? I'm going to attack on to the bottom of that because I think um, there's a, another question that can be answered similarly. And the question is this. Um, is, it, is it ready? Okay, well, let me address that first thing. So 70% of people in America claim to be Christians. How do we address them um, if they're living as nominal Christians? I think probably the, the first thing that we need to learn to do is really to discern, uh, to discern uh, the fruit of the Spirit. So when we look at someone's life, if we don't see those things uh, existent in, in, in their actions, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then um, if this is truly a Christian that we have a relationship with, we have an opportunity to speak into their life. Um, in the previous service, there was another question that was very similar to this about what about those people who are essentially false witnesses uh, in the Bible? They're, you know, they're, they're referred to as wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and I, the way I said it was, if we have direct access to them, then we challenge, we ask questions. If we, if we are not seeing the fruit in their life uh, that Christ says we should be bearing or that, um, you know, the spirit says that we should be bearing, we learn to discern that. And we call it out. Um, but I think that we need to be able to call it out in people, uh, like directly. I, I think it's, pros- I, I would say it's inappropriate to do it, um, to someone who's not essentially li- listening to us. So if we shout out on social media, this person is a, a wolf in sheep's clothing about someone. I, I'm not convinced that's the best way to do it because we get into a conversation, uh, that's, that really doesn't bear any good fruit. We need to be, having a dialogue with the people that we're, we're responding to, which then goes into the next question. How do I deal with raising my kids in regard to keeping them with good friends and not falling into sin, but engaging others as you are saying? And, and I think uh, one of this, this question really begs that question. How do we teach our kids to discern? How do we teach them to think critically about the things that they're experiencing? Can, can we raise our, our our children to make good choices about the friends uh, that they keep and, and the ideas that they hear uh, or being exposed to. And that's what I would say is our responsibility. We have to teach critical thought. We have to, to help them understand, to, to discern for themselves. It's okay if, if our kids get exposed to bad stuff, but we need to teach them to be able to discern that that is unacceptable. And the very best way is to show them what is in here. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is the moral right? What is, what is the, what does the fruit of the Spirit actually look like in the lives of the people that call themselves Christians? And if, if they're around people who are not like that, is that healthy? Is that healthy? Should we be following those people? That is a lot of good questions there and 
I agree fully with Jeremy on that, but here's how we oftentimes practice this as parents, and I would submit to you a very strong, maybe this is going to come across too strongly. The reason we have so much of this in the church today is because we've raised our kids wrongly. We've raised our kids to bunker from bad influence rather than be discerning and engage friendship. We've not taught our kids the kind of balance in life that all of us need to have. We need to have our Christian friends who we are close and honest with, but we need to engage, like Jesus, in relationship with people who are different. You know, I have parents come to me all, a lot of times and say, what should I do? My kid's around this person, and this person's in this sin. And name any sin you want. And usually they're sexual sins or, or drug addictions and stuff, and they say, I need to get my kids away from them. Well, what we're doing is we're teaching our kids to bunker. We're teaching them morality in a box. And they never learn the compassion to hear the story and connect and still keep their boundaries. They never learn the strength to keep their boundaries and still be in compassionate relationship. And so these people become distant objects, and that's how we raise and create hateful Christians is when we teach our kids and they grow up believing it's more important to set the boundary and make that hard and fast and keep people distant from us than it is for me to learn and risk the fact that, yes, I might be tempted to sin a few times. I mean, with the gospel, why do we make such a big deal out of that? I mean, it is a big deal. It's hurtful, it's painful, and some of those sins can be bad, especially if they get into drug addiction. I, I get that. But it's forgiven. Why are we not teaching our kids to engage with compassion? To hear the stories of the people who are hurting, who are caught in that, and learning to be strong enough to keep their boundaries. Why is it that so many Christian kids go to college and fall off the rails? It's because we have raised them wrongly. We've not parented them well. We've allowed them to live a bunkering lifestyle, and they have no frame of reference for compassion and yet keeping their boundary because they're not engaged in those relationships and you can't have compassion unless you're engaged in those relationships, can you? Is there another question? Can you say that again so I can prep my next one? <laughs> uh, I do have a, a question here uh, that I think, I think Ross was speaking to a little bit, um, but I can maybe address. I'm so, I'm so afraid of being a judging Christian. I feel like I'm not pursuing my non-believing friends to have a relationship with Jesus. How do I encourage non-Christians without coming across as hateful? I, this is this is a great question. This really comes to the essence of what we're talking about, right? This is you know like how how do we how do we deal with uh, the people who are in the outside world? How do we reflect Christ and His love and mercy to them so that they may be interested at all in any way in the lifestyle that we have? And and um, I'm just going to read the scripture. This is from first Peter. And this is what I referenced earlier, um, as, uh, like something that I encourage you to read. And I still encourage you, uh, to read this as well. Um, this is, uh, first Corinthians two, and I'm going to start in, in I'm sorry, not first Corinthians, first Peter two, uh, verse nine says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And Peter goes on and on and on and says, these are the ways that we should be living. Like we should, our lives should be so very different from the lives of the outside world. The way that we live, the things that we choose to do, uh, the, the things that we say, the things that we, you know, whatever. Exposure, you understand what I'm saying. That people are, are looking at our lives and saying, why are you so different than me? The joy that we have, all of the fruit of the Spirit that we exhibit on a day-to-day basis, which, by the way, this is a, a case for us um, bearing the fruit of the Spirit when we're at work and when we're at home and we're around the unbelievers around us. Uh, when they see those kinds of things, they're going to ask questions. And Paul says it very, um, Peter says it very explicitly in chapter 3 and going on. He says, people are going to ask you. They're going to know want to know what is different about your life. Once you were people, uh, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, people are going to say, why? And you can say, this is why. When they ask you, you have the freedom to say precisely why your life is different. This is what my life is about. It's about Christ, his sacrifice, his submission his death on the cross, the resurrection, and I will show you the very same kind of submission and humility by how I live. Is that fair? Is that, is that good? you want to? No, that's great. Okay. Um, uh, just one more question. Uh, it's kind of combined. There's a the, 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 the question about how should, should we post stuff on Facebook and a question especially about hateful comments about immigration. This gets to the core of our series. Most of us, if I were to ask you the question, do you know what the Bible says about immigration? Do you even know what book to look in to find that in the Bible? I'm guessing that very few of you could probably say that. Maybe some. I'm sure some of you could. I don't think we should be posting a whole lot of stuff on Facebook that we see posted. We can still express our views, but Facebook is exactly like an email. How many times do you say something in an email and you destroy somebody's feelings because words come across different, right? We have to be extremely careful. Is the stuff, we can assert our, our political views if we want. You can assert your moral views. But the question is, can you do it in a way that represents the grace and the kindness of Christ? Or is it just reposting some blogheads or pundits' angry statement? I think one of the most disappointing things for me in our culture today is not that I necessarily, I'm not going to make, a, I'm not making a political statement, I'm making a cultural statement, is in the whole presidential election debates, all that stuff going on. You've got a couple of people, and I'm not saying I agree with their, I'm not, again, I'm not making a political statement agreeing with their policies, but you've got a couple people trying to come across gracious and kind most of the time, delineating issues. But the ones who are getting all the attention are the ones who are the, who are the, who are just slamming and the media loves it. And the people love it. What does that say about our culture? It's not very healthy, is it?
And it's not very Christ-like. And I hate it that some of those people actually claim the name of Christ and act like that. I'm sure they're believers in Jesus. I'm not questioning the fact that they're believers in Jesus. But I just hate that part about our culture. So we, if we want to change that, we have to lead the way in learning to be different so that our language over disagreements is inviting with questions, with kindness, and with grace, even when we talk about difficult things. And that's actually what this whole series is about. So I'll let Jeremy close the message right there. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you took that last question. I intentionally avoided it. Um, he got the clue. Uh, so, uh, like, uh, my, my, I just want to make this final statement. As Christians, we have a responsibility. A responsibility that, that guides us into how we interact with the outside world, that guides us to how we interact with the church that we belong to, and ultimately how we interact with ourselves in our own life of faith. And, and as Christians, our responsibility first is to be the light, love, and mercy of Christ. That's what we are supposed to reflect. The light, love, and mercy of Christ as he reflected himself to the world so that people might come to him, believe in him, and and be given eternal life, right? This gift that was given to them. That's what we were supposed to reflect. And to the inside, the world of the church, the believers, how are we supposed to act and respond? Well, we're supposed to be the light and the love and the mercy of Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. Can we judge? Yeah, absolutely. But we should do it with love, with mercy, with compassion, with forgiveness, with patience. We should do it in the way that Christ did it with us. While we were still sinners, he came to us. He offered us this gift when we were broken, when we were separated, when we didn't deserve anything but death. So how do we respond to our brother and sister in Christ? With that same kind of humble submission, wanting the very best life. So how do we come to ourselves in the same way? With patience, because it takes a long time in this journey of transformation to become like Christ. So we have to have patience with ourselves. And so, Quest, I say, let's engage with this process. Let's submit to what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, and let's represent Christ the very best way that we know how. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. We thank you for the transformation, the correction, the conviction, though it may be painful, we thank you because we know that the more that we submit to you, Holy Spirit, the more that we reflect Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you first came to us humbly, sacrificially, offering us a life worth living. Thank you that we said yes. Thank you that we can participate with you. And Father, we thank you. We thank you that you, God, you go before us. You step into our lives before we even understand uh, that we need you. Thank you. So we continue to ask for more. Let us continue to submit to the process. Submit to the transformation that you have us so that we might bear the fruit of the Spirit. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. 
For more information about Quest, who we are, and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. 